All right. Thanks, Dan. If you have a Bible, please turn in it to Romans chapter 11. Our passage this morning is verses 1 through 10. I think that Romans chapter 11 might be for some people sort of the flyover chapter of Romans, um, sort of like the flyover states of the Great Plains. Nobody really stops there because we want to get on to someplace else that's more interesting. And so Romans chapter 11 can feel like sort of a flyover chapter. Why do we really need to read it? And the reason for that is because the whole chapter deals with God's relationship with Israel. Um, and so if you're not of Jewish background, you could wonder how this chapter has anything to do with you, um, but it does. And so it's just like the deep reservoirs of oil beneath the uh, Oklahoma prairie. If you stop and dig a little bit, you can find treasures. You can find riches there in this chapter. Um, we should note that Paul's doxology, his praise at the end of chapter 11, where he says, oh, the depth of the riches and the wisdom and the knowledge of God, how unsearchable are his judgments and how inscrutable his ways. That doesn't come until after the content of chapter 11. That's what makes him overflow with this need to spontaneously praise God. So we're going to try and see what Paul sees in this and see how it applies to us for our lives, because there's, there's something here to help us more fully appreciate the astonishing nature of salvation through Christ. So let's uh, read Romans 11, <clears throat> 1 through 10, and then I'll pray. I ask then, has God rejected his people? By no means. For I myself am an Israelite, a descendant of Abraham, a member of the tribe of Benjamin. God has not rejected his people, whom he foreknew. Do you not know what the scripture says of Elijah, how he appeals to God against Israel? Lord, they have killed your prophets, they have demolished your altars, and I alone am left, and they seek my life. But what is God's reply to him? I have kept for myself 7,000 men who have not bowed the knee to Baal. So too at the present time, there is a remnant chosen by grace. But if it is by grace, it is no longer on the basis of works. Otherwise, grace would no longer be grace. What then? Israel failed to obtain what it was seeking. The elect obtained it, but the rest were hardened. As it is written, God gave them a spirit of stupor, eyes that would not see and ears that would not hear, down to this very day. And David says, let their table become a snare and a trap, a stumbling block and a retribution for them. Let their eyes be darkened so that they cannot see and bend their backs forever. <clears throat> Let's pray. We need your help, Lord, to access this chapter. We're not ethnic Israel. We, we aren't from that background. We're Gentiles. <clears throat> and yet there's something here for Gentiles. This is written for all of God's people. This is written for the world to know about. So would you help us um, to get in there into what Paul saw, what made him excited to, to, go, on, to go on this, not a tangent, but to, to, to say more 
about your relationship with Israel. So we ask you to do that now and show us your glory again. Show us the beauty of Jesus Christ. In his name we pray. Amen. <clears throat> well, the big question in this passage is stated in verse 1. Has God rejected his people? That means, has God abandoned ethnic Israel? The ancient historical people descended from Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. Is he done with the Jews? This is a question that Paul wanted to deal with because you could get the impression that God is done with the Jews from what he said in chapters 9 and 10. There Paul highlighted the fact that the Jews, on the whole, rejected Jesus as their Savior, as their long-awaited Messiah. Um, so they were actually cut off from God's favor. They were cut off from Christ. They, they weren't saved. Um, that's what Paul ran into everywhere he went sharing the gospel. He'd, he'd get some conversions, but mostly the Jews did not believe in Jesus. However, to the contrary, many Gentiles, non-Jews, believed in Jesus. They were the ones who were being saved. This, those were the ones who were being welcomed by God. So this movement from Israel to the Gentiles is captured at the end of chapter 10 with these two quotes from Isaiah, where God says, I have been found by those who did not seek me. He's talking about the Gentiles. But all day long, he says of Israel, I have held out my hands to a disobedient and contrary people. So you've got this contrast, these Gentiles, non-Jews, they're getting saved. They're, get, they're entering the kingdom of God. The Jews, they're, they're disobedient. They're contrary. They're not going in. And so it looks like, okay, God's done with them. He's, he's written them off. That's what you might think by reading chapters 9 and 10. Well, Paul doesn't want us to think that. He doesn't want us to believe that, that God is somehow done with the Jews. <clears throat> and chapter 11 explains that God has not rejected his people, the ethnic people, the descendants of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. He still has plans for them. Now, why should that matter to us who are not of Jewish descent? Why, why should we care about God's relationship with ethnic Israel? Here's why it matters. If God has rejected Israel as a people, then he is not a God that you can trust. I think that's got to be true. If he's rejected Israel as a people, he's not a God you can trust. You see, about three-quarters of your Bible is about the special relationship that God had with Israel. He promised to be their God and that they would be his people, a people that would enjoy his favor and his blessing like nobody else. In verse 2, Paul says that God has not rejected his people whom he foreknew. <clears throat> to foreknow means to choose ahead of time with a special love. God chose to enter into a covenant relationship with Israel, just like a man decides that he wants to enter a, a, a covenant with a woman and, and be married to her. It's a, it's a death till death do us part commitment that God made to Israel. And since God will never die, the covenant is forever. So if God has rejected Israel, the descendants of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, according to the flesh, then he can't be trusted to keep his commitments. 
and specifically for believers in Christ, you can't trust his commitment to you. Because in Romans 8, 20, uh, 29 to 30, it says of believers that God foreknew you, that he chose you ahead of time with a special love, that he is committed to bringing you into his favor and blessing. But if he didn't keep that commitment to Israel, then you don't know that he'll keep that commitment to you either. Because then he would be just like a man who pledges his love to a woman and then he drops her so that he, because he found somebody better. You can't trust somebody like that. So it matters whether or not God has rejected ethnic Israel as a people. It speaks to his commitment to keep his promises to save, to forgive all your sins and bring you to eternal glory. So chapter 11 is here to reassure believers, whether from the Jews or from the Gentiles, that when God keep, makes a commitment, he keeps it. He's a God we can trust to keep his commitment to save us through Jesus Christ. So let's see Paul's defense that God has not rejected his people Israel. And he has more than one answer for that in chapter 11. But the first answer in, in verses 1 through 10 is this, that there is a remnant of ethnic Israel that is saved. There, there is a remnant that is saved. There is a remnant that is not rejected, <clears throat> even today. So let's go to the text and see what he has to say about that. He says in verse 1, I myself am an Israelite, a descendant of Abraham, a member of the tribe of Benjamin. So in other words, Paul is saying, hey, I'm from ethnic Israel. I'm one of the 12 tribes, uh, and I'm not rejected. In fact, uh, the resurrected Jesus himself met me on the road to Damascus. He, he's, he found me persecuting God's people, and he rescued me from my rebellion. He came and he opened my eyes, literally and figuratively. Um, he showed me that Jesus is the Messiah, and I believed. And in believing, I was forgiven my sins. I was united to Christ. God is my God. I am numbered among his people. So one thing you can't say is that God has rejected Israel completely because he hasn't rejected me. That's his opening argument. Now that's only one person. Not exactly a huge representation from an entire nation. So Paul goes on to expand the number. He gives Elijah's story as an example in verses 2 through 5. Now the background behind Elijah's story is from 1 Kings chapter 19. Elijah lived in a time when uh, Israel was under King Ahab and Queen Jezebel, which was a real low point in the leadership of Israel. They were a very wicked couple. <clears throat> they killed the prophets of the Lord. They appointed a whole bunch of priests and prophets to Baal and Asherah. Um, they totally rejected God. They instituted idol worship as the official national religion of Israel. Israel looked like a pagan nation, uh, nothing at all like what it was under David when people greatly feared the Lord. So that's the, that's the background behind Elijah. <clears throat> but then Elijah, he has this dramatic showdown with 450 prophets of Baal. He challenged them to a contest. Uh, he said, let's sacrifice an, uh, an animal on an altar, and whichever God, whether Baal or the God of Israel, 
whichever one sends fire down on the offering, that is the true God. Of course, Baal loses, the 450 prophets are executed, but then Jezebel puts a bounty on Elijah's head to have him killed, so he runs for his life. He comes to the Lord, and he says what's quoted in verse 3. Lord, they have killed your prophets, they have demolished your altars, and I alone am left, and they seek my life. So as far as Elijah can see, he's the last faithful Israelite on the planet. Uh, the only one still in right relationship with God. But what was God's reply to him? I have kept my, for myself 7,000 men who have not bowed the knee to Baal. So in other words, uh, Elijah, you're not the only one. <clears throat> in fact, there are actually 7,000. <laughs> you don't know it. You can't see it. You don't know where they are, but they're there. I've kept 7,000 who have not bowed the knee to Baal. So yes, that's not many compared to the millions in Israel, but it's still more than you think. Paul brings that into the present day, his present day. He says in verse 5, so too, at the present time, there is a remnant chosen by grace. A remnant is a small group within a larger group. This is the group that's not rejected by God. This is the group Paul refers to in Romans 9, 27, where he quoted Isaiah again, saying, Through, though the number of the sons of Israel be as the sand of the sea, only a remnant of them will be saved. It isn't everyone in Israel, but it is some. Paul says, I'm one of them, and there's a whole bunch more out there who are being saved. Jews who are putting their trust in Jesus Christ, who are believing the gospel, and they are being added to this remnant of Israel that is not rejected by God. So in Paul's day, all those who from Israel like him who put their trust in Jesus as Savior were the remnant. Um, it wasn't necessarily many. It wasn't all the Jews for sure. Most of them said no. But there were some who were experiencing the fulfillment of God's promise, of his covenant promise, that he would save them, that he would be their God, and they would be his people, and he would bless them. Now, we can take encouragement from this, because this applies to the church. Um, believers in Christ are part of the remnant. You may not be all from Israel, but you're a remnant from the world, out of which many are called, but few are chosen. Uh, that's what Jesus said. The number of people who believe in Jesus has always been the minority, um, never the majority. It's always been few. The road is narrow that leads to life, and few are those who find it. That's the nature of the world, that it, it's a remnant that is saved. It's not everybody. Um, but yet, yeah, it's not as few as that might sound. <clears throat> um, just think about America for a minute. There was a time in America when it seemed like most people were Christians, or at least churchgoers. I can remember that time when I grew up, uh, you know, when I was a kid in the 60s, 70s. It seemed like, you know, just Christianity was everywhere, and nobody really opposed it. That's not true anymore. Now it's very secular. Only something like 6% of the next generation um, identifies as an evangelical Christian. <clears throat> we do still have 
many churches some churches even huge tens of thousands of people there's a lot of people who profess facing faith in christ and yet we know entire denominations are abandoning the faith once delivered to all the saints they're abandoning essential doctrines the gospel itself is no longer taught in some places that call themselves christian so it seems like in our culture um, genuine followers of jesus are few and far between and that can be discouraging because some days you might feel like elijah saying i alone am left um, but here's a truth to hang on to god has more people than you think elijah could only count one but there was seven thousand and so it is in our day the true church is smaller than it looks like but it's also much bigger than you think we're only aware of certain people that we know that are christian um, and it looks like there's a lot, a lot that aren't, and people that are getting more and more secular, more and more opposed to Christ. And yet, even though the visible church is shrinking, the true church is always growing because Jesus is building it, and the gates of hell will not prevail against it. It's being built with every new believer in Christ. Here in Colorado, other places around the nation, Latin America, Iran, um, India, all around the world, Jesus is building his church. He has his people, and the gates of hell will not prevail against it. There is nothing that can destroy the true church. So I think we can take encouragement from that. And that leads to the second point, which is how we know, how, how we know that nothing can destroy the church, how we know that the remnant will always be there and persevere to the end. How do we know that? Well, here's the second point. The remnant is chosen and kept by God's sovereign grace. It's chosen and kept by God's sovereign grace. Going back to verse four, the Lord said of the remnant in Elijah's day, I have kept for myself 7,000 men who have not bowed the knee to Baal. I've kept for myself. That doesn't mean that there were 7,000 men who by force of their own will did not abandon the Lord. And so he says, oh, here's 7,000 guys who aren't, who aren't defiled. I will make them my own. No, that's not at all what this means. Verse 5 makes it clear how they got to be the remnants who acted that way. It says, so too, or like in Elijah's day, there is a remnant chosen by grace. Two important words there, chosen and grace. Chosen means chosen by God to be saved. People that he put his love on, his, his foreknowing love on them and says, I'm going to make you my own. I'm going to betroth you to myself. That's what the chosen means. God made a choice to do it. And grace tells us what the basis of that choice was. It means undeserved favor from God. It means you get into this covenant relationship with God, not because you did something good that God is obligated to reward, but to the contrary, you did something bad that God can rightly condemn you for, but he doesn't. 
that's grace. No one deserves to be in the remnant. As Paul said in chapter 3, none is righteous, no, not one. There would be no remnant. There would be only disobedient and contrary people who bow their knee to Baal or somewhere else were it not for God's initiative to save some. And we call that initiative election. We see it in verse 7. What then? Israel failed to obtain what it was seeking. The elect obtained it. The elect. Election was a subject of chapter 9. So we won't go over that ground again in detail. But to sum it up, the only way a person gets forgiveness of sin and eternal life is if God chooses or elects you to have it. We are all like criminals on death row, deserving judgment. But God, who is rich in mercy, decides to save some. So he grants to those, to the elect, repentance and faith, through which you receive the righteousness of Jesus Christ. That means you get his perfect record of keeping God's law. God sees you as having been completely faithful to him as if you had done all the beautiful works that Jesus did yourself. <clears throat> That's the good news of the gospel, which Paul called the gospel of the grace of God. And verse 6 says, if it is by grace, it is no longer on the basis of works. Nobody gets the righteousness of Christ. Nobody becomes righteous in God's sight. By works, you become righteous by being elect by being chosen by grace through faith in Jesus as Savior. That's the gospel. Now here's the really reassuring thing to know about being chosen by grace for salvation. It means that you are being kept by God. I have kept for myself 7,000 men who have not bowed the knee to Baal, the Lord says. To be saved is to be kept by God for himself. Your salvation doesn't depend on you holding on to God, is what that means. It depends on God holding on to you. <laughs> and that is exactly what he does for believers in Jesus Christ. You want God holding on to you. You don't want salvation to depend on you holding on to God. Um, that is not security at all. But if God's holding on to you, under a covenant sealed by the blood of his own son, Jesus Christ, that is security. That's the ground for hope in a world that wants to crush all hope. To be chosen by grace means God is keeping you for eternal joy and glory. It means God will never leave or forsake you. It means you will never be rejected by God. That's safe ground. That's where we find rest for our souls. So just to appreciate that, think about the alternative. What if it depends on you holding on to God? Think about what life would be like under, under the basis of works instead of by grace. It would mean that every day you have to keep all of God's commandments to the letter with a whole heart or else you're out. You're not in the remnant because your works aren't good enough. Your works condemn you. My works condemn me. 
Well, I'm afraid that many of us don't have to imagine what life is like under those conditions because we're all too familiar with actually living that way. It means that sometimes we're constantly aware of falling short uh, in holiness, not meeting God's standards, the standards for what we are created to be like. It means we're always trying to silence our conscience by trying harder tomorrow. There's no joy in that. There's no peace in that, no security, no bedrock assurance that God is for you because you're trying to keep yourself in the remnants. But the gospel said God is keeping you in the remnant. That's, that's, that's encouraging. And he's doing it because he foreknew you. He chose before the foundation of the world, according to Ephesians 1. He chose to make you the remnant. He chose to keep you for himself to make you not bow your knee to Baal, but to bow your knee to Jesus instead. He's the one who did all that. That's encouraging. We're being kept for salvation. Salvation is being kept for us. I have to say, that's how I view both my conversion and my uh, subsequent experience as a Christian. I feel that it's all about God keeping me because <clears throat> I was a non-Christian in college. I was living in the dorms. This was the first time I was out from underneath my parents' supervision. I could do whatever I wanted, nobody to tell me yes or no. And around me, all around me was drugs, headlong pursuit of pleasure, parties. I was being invited to dive into that world with everybody else. Um, but somehow I didn't. And I'm thinking, why didn't I? They were all doing it. I think it's because God kept me. I know that's what it was. He just kept me from doing it. And he's also kept me since then. When I think about all the mistakes I've made, all the sins I've committed, all the foolish choices I've made, um, having seen several friends profess to be believers but then fall away, um, having had pastor friends leave the ministry, when I think about all of that, I ask myself, why am I still a Christian? Why am I still a pastor? And the only reason is because God is keeping me. I belong to him. And he keeps his covenants. He keeps his promises. He's doing the same thing for you. If you're a genuine believer in Jesus. You might fall down sometimes. You'll do things that you regret. You're going to realize time and again that you've blown it. But if you're part of the remnant, you can fall down, but you can never fall away. God will not reject you. And that's forever. So whatever might happen in your future, whether it's from the virus or the economy, whether it's a decline in the visible church, whether it's a rise of persecution, whatever it is, you're going to get through it until the moment that the Lord says, I want you to be with me body and soul eventually in a resurrection <clears throat> god is keeping you well there's one more point we have to make to appreciate the grace of god in his commitment to save us it has to do with what does it mean to be outside the remnant what is that like what happens to those people what would we be like if we weren't chosen by grace and Paul speaks to that in the rest of the passage. He's speaking about Israel, 
but it applies to what everyone who's outside of Christ. The point is the rest of Israel is hardened, is what he says. The rest of Israel is hardened, but just for now, just for now. I say for now because as we're going to see in the rest of the chapter, the hardening of Israel and on many believers today is not permanent. Otherwise, there would be no reason for evangelism. But there is a hardening that happens among those who are not saved. Verse, verse 7 says, What then? Israel failed to obtain what it was seeking. The elect obtained it, but the rest were hardened. So that is the rest of ethnic Israel, those not chosen by grace for salvation, were hardened by God against belief in Jesus Christ. That's ground that we also covered in chapter 9. For God, for God to harden someone doesn't mean that they wanted to believe in Christ, but God prevented it. He stepped in. I wanted to be saved, but, I, but he wouldn't let me. It doesn't mean that. It means he took their already closed hearts, their already hardened hearts, and he let them get even harder, even more firmly shut against Jesus Christ and the gospel. Hardening is just giving people over to what they already want. As in chapter 1, where it says, he gave them up in the lusts of their hearts. The prime example of that in chapter 9 was Pharaoh. You remember Pharaoh, he didn't want Israel to go. He, he liked having lots of slaves. And so he wouldn't let them go to sacrifice in the wilderness to their God. So he prevents them from going. And so all the plagues come to get him to change his mind. Um, so he hardened his heart, it says, but it also says God hardened his heart. Pharaoh hardened his heart and God hardened his heart. God let Pharaoh um, get worse and worse and worse until it led to this dramatic deliverance so that God could show his power over him. Um, so that's one example of what hardening looks like as a person like Pharaoh but does it always look that way? Does it always look like hostility, aggression, persecution? No, it doesn't actually. Um, and that's what Paul speaks to in the end of the chapter, or the end of these verses, because actually it can look very religious. It can look very moral. Um, it's about a heart condition more than it is about the external behavior. So you see that in verse 8. Hardening looks like this. God gave them a spirit of stupor, eyes that would not see and ears that would not hear. A spirit of stupor is like a drunk person who's insensible to reality. Eyes that don't see and ears that don't hear are senses that aren't functioning properly. So this can describe uh, an intelligent and even a morally zealous person who just doesn't have receptivity to the gospel. It can, be, it can describe a person who wants to obtain righteousness by works and not by faith in Christ. It, it can be a very religious person. It could be somebody who's trying to be good. But what they're insensible to is God's way of salvation, which is to humble ourselves and submit to his righteousness granted through faith. If we won't do that, 
that's the indication that our heart is hard, that we're hardened against gospel. Moral people can be hardened people. But it can also look like a person that we might see as obviously immoral, somebody who's attached to the world. You see that in verse 9, where in David's prayer, he says, let their table become a snare and a trap. Um, the table is a place of food and enjoyment and provision. Um, it's comforting. Uh, and he says, let it become a snare. So when these things become a snare, it's because they become too important to us. They become this replacement for God in our heart, in our affection, in what makes us feel like we need this in order to live. Uh, that's where it, how it becomes a snare. It becomes your security. Uh, all these good things in life, they become your security instead of Jesus Christ. And so you bow down and you worship those things just as surely as somebody would bow down to Baal. Um, that's also hardening. A hard heart doesn't have to be in-your-face hostility toward Christ. It can be, um, I just love stuff. And so I'm happy with that, and I don't need Jesus. That's hardening. So you can be hardened by trying to be good, and you can be hardened by giving yourself over to good things. Either way, um, we become hard to the only hope of salvation which is faith in Jesus Christ. And friends, that's what we would all do if not for God's saving grace, his sovereign grace. We sometimes sing a song called, uh, Oh Great God, and I've asked Bill to lead us in it at the end here. It's about our condition. There's this one verse that talks about our condition prior to coming to faith in Jesus. And that verse says this, I was blinded by my sin. So that's eyes that would not see. Um, I had no ears to hear your voice. So that's ears that would not hear. Did not know your love within. Had no taste for heaven's joys. That's what a hard heart looks like. That's what every heart looks like until God makes you part of the remnant chosen by grace. That's your heart and my heart until the Lord makes our closed hearts open by giving us his spirit and showing us the beauty of Christ and gives us the power to live a new life. And so the song continues on that, on that note. He says, then your spirit gave me life, opened up your word to me, through the gospel of your son gave me endless hope and peace. That's what it looks like to be chosen by grace and to have your hard heart softened and to be given a new heart. That's what God does so that we will never be rejected by him. That's the miracle that he wants us to celebrate if you're a believer in Jesus. So I want to close on that note. Um, Bill will lead us in singing, Oh Great God. And the song is a prayer and a celebration. It celebrates being rescued from our stupor and given eyes to see and ears to hear by the Holy Spirit to see Christ as beautiful. But it's also a prayer for even more because as long as we live in this life, there's going to be still some hardness of hearing and some impaired vision to see the glory of Jesus. 
and the security of those who are part of the remnant, there's always going to be a battle going on where we don't fully get it. Um, but remember, God is the one holding on to us. <laughs> so he lets us um, struggle a bit. We have to in this world. Um, and yet he also has come to give us better sight. And part of that comes by just remembering it in, in the word, remembering it in song, telling it to one another and saying, hey, brother, hey, sister, we're the remnant. We're being kept by God. We've been chosen by grace. God is for us. God will never reject us. Um, that's what we get to do for one another, because in this world, we lose, we lose that awareness. And so we're going to sing. Uh, let me pray first, and then Bill will lead us. Lord, we just thank you for being trustworthy. Um, you had made promises to a people, a, a nation called Israel, and you are keeping those. There is a remnant, even from Israel, even from the Jews, that are saved. And then there's this other remnant that's the remnant expands beyond them. It expands to us who are who are called out of the world. We're the we're the few who have found the way to life, but only because you chose us by grace. And we thank you for that. And we pray, Lord, that we could live in the good of it this week and be stable in the midst of uncertainties of the world we have real concrete assurance we're being kept and so thank you in jesus name amen